All right, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 15. We're going to read down to verse 18, and then we're going to just unpack this because there's a lot in here, and we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in this today, okay? Let's read. It says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, and always be being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. And Lord, we want to come and reverence your name. We want your name to be hallowed. We want it to be holy. It is holy, Lord, and let us ascribe to you the glory that you deserve, the glory that your name honors and merits. Lord, we, we want to come and worship you today. Lord, I hope we've come with the right mindset, the right reason to be here, not for ourselves, but God, for you. Let us come to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let us, Lord... By the help of the Holy Spirit, understand your word more than we have ever had. And Lord, we're confident of one thing, that if we know you more and we know you deeper, then we'll have greater affection for you because there's no way that we can truly understand who you are without causing us to love you more. God, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for what it means. And Lord, we're thankful for the truth of your word. I pray that you would give me the words to speak. I pray that you would lead me into all truth. And Lord, that you would open our eyes today to your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. This verse, starting in verse 15, is not a standalone verse. We, we labor the point that we have to put everything into context. That's the one thing that we, we have to just be reminded all the time. It has to be context, context, context. One verse stand alone on its own, you can do anything you want to with it. We've, we've labored that point. In verse 15, that starts, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, doesn't just come out of nowhere. We have to look just up a few verses to see what he's talking about. And all through this book, all, all through this letter that Peter has written to the chosen exiles there in modern day Turkey, he's labored the point of one thing, that you have a blessed hope and suffering will come. Trials will come. The, the suffering is there for a reason. It is pur purifying your faith. And he continues to tell them that, listen, you're going to be peculiar. You're going to be the outcasts, and people will come against you. You will be slandered. You will be reviled. You will be hated. You will be insulted. All these things are going to come, which is what comes to all those who stand for the righteousness of Christ. We, we know that. Those who are in Christ will suffer persecution. There's no way around it. And previously, we have talked about and preached on what is our response. As Christ is our example, how are we to respond when people slander or insult or do all these other things to us? And some of the hardest words that Christ can tell us through uh, the leadership of the Holy Spirit is what? 
Don't respond like the world. Don't respond like your flesh wants to, but respond like Christ. Turn from those things, turn from evil, and seek peace and good as Christ was our example. He suffered unjustly, he was uh, slandered, he was insulted, but he did not sin in his response. That's our example that we're supposed to follow. In the previous verses, in verse 14, says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. We talked about this on Thursday, that our mindset should be that when we are persecuted for righteousness, there's no greater, there's no greater persecution that you could have, that you are suffering for righteousness. What other, what other thing could there be a higher uh, calling to do than to suffer for righteousness? And he says, consider yourself blessed. And we went to the, to, to the Sermon on the Mount where he said, those who are persecuted rejoice because yours is the kingdom of God. And he tells us, don't fear their intimidation. Don't fear man who can just kill you, although it would be in the ordained plan of God because your days are already numbered. But to fear the one who can take the body and the soul in hell. Don't be troubled. This is where we come to the context of verse 15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. We, we spent a majority of our time on Thursday talking about sanctifying Christ in our hearts and, the, and the, the connection between the mind and the heart. And briefly, just so we can catch up on that, we are told that as Christians we are to think. And it is not just intellectually enough to know about the Bible or to know about Christ because it has to get to the heart if, if it's in the mind intellectually, there are people that know about the Bible and say they, they understand the things of the Bible, but it never has gotten to the heart because it is the heart that is being reborn. And we know that it is the mind that is being changed in repentance. And there's a connection. And the example that we used in this was Judas, is that Judas knew all about the Bible. He knew all about the Old Testament. He knew all about Christ. He intellectually knew it all, but it never got to the heart because the heart was not regenerate, generated. So it's intellectually not enough just to know about Christ. There are people that claim that all over. But unless the heart has been changed, unless it has been renewed by the working of the Holy Spirit, that's not enough. It has to get to the heart. The heart has to be changed. The, the heart has to be cultivated by God to receive that word. What is processed in the mind goes to the heart of the believer. We're told in today's society, in the churches, we mentioned that we're taught that just come into the church and shut off your mind. That's not true. We're not to shut off our minds. If there's ever a people on planet earth that is to think, it is the Christian. We're not to come in and ride the wave of emotion and go on our feelings, but we're to go on the truth of the word. I, we were talking about this the other night, and, and it, we, had, we had shared this, I think, on Facebook a long time ago about a, a, an individual, his name's Alistair Begg, and, and he was given a sermon, and I think it's one of the greatest little short sections of, of audio and video I've seen because it tells such a great story of not shutting off your mind. Because he says, when you come into worship and it's all about your feelings, here's the problem that arises. Because if you're honest with yourself, you've came into church before, and you've not felt like worshiping God. True. What has went on before church? If you're a parent, maybe your kids have got you to where you are just ready to get to church and get it over with to take care of business when you get home. Maybe your spouse has said something crazy. Surely not, right? And now you're, you're upset. Your mind is off the things of God. 
Maybe you're thinking about the struggles of tomorrow, the things of the workday tomorrow. And maybe you've just had the worst week possible and you come to church and if you're relying on feelings, guess what? You're going to have a bad time. And this guy says, listen, don't ask me what I feel because what I feel is not always good. And he says, but ask me what I know. Ask me what I know. That I know that even in the middle of the hardest week or the day that I've ever had, it is ordained by God. And that all things are working for good for those who love Him, who called according to His purpose. When I feel like I'm all alone, then I, I, I may feel that way, but the Bible tells me that I know that He's never leaving me nor forsaking me. See, when you start to think about what you know that is anchored in the Scripture, then worship starts to take a different shape. When you don't feel saved, when you don't feel good, when you don't feel fill in the blank, you go to the pages of the Scripture and you stand on the promises. When you feel like the world is in chaos and you don't know what tomorrow holds and you don't know what you're going to do, tell me what I know. And the Bible says that He is on the throne he is ruling and He's reigning and the sovereignty reigns over all. You see how that begins to work on the soul? If you come in here today with feelings, it'll deceive you and it will trip you up. I hope when you came in that door today, you didn't come to worship with feelings, but you came to worship in spirit and in truth. And His Word is truth. Now, how does that work? Do we not have emotions? That's incorrect. Because the emotions now come from the knowledge that you have. The more that you know about this God, then the emotion will fly out of your soul. It will well up in you. You see how that's the order that it's supposed to go. We can't shut off our mind because it is the mind that tells us the things of God. Conversely, we can't just write emotion and we can't turn off our brains. There's a... There's a connection there. So I ask you today, what do you know? Go past your feelings and what do you know? Do you know that the Lord is good? Yeah, I know that. Even if the day doesn't feel it, He can't do anything that is not good. So even in the middle of the hardest thing, it's good. He does all things well. And the list can go on of all the things we know, but think about that just for a moment. He says to sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Why would he say this? Because here comes the people that are going to insult you and slander you, and they're going to look at you. And if you are responding as Christ calls you to respond, do you know what the world's going to think of you? You're nuts. You've lost your mind. How in the world can a human being respond like that when they have every quote-unquote right to give it right back to the person as equally bad or if not worse than they were given to them? And they see that because they're always watching. And it doesn't take one second to lose a witness. But they see that and they're like, what are you doing? What is different about you? And they may begin to ask you to give a defense of your actions, of your hope, of your faith. That's what he tells us here. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled by them. Don't be intimidated by them. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And look at the next word. Always being ready. There's not a day off. There's not a, I'm not ready. The Bible is clear that we are to be always ready at the drop of a hat, at the, at the next second, to be able to give a defense of the hope that lies within us. 
Could you do that? If someone came to you and said, why do you believe that? What do you believe and why do you believe it? What would you say? This is how we ended Thursday night. So often our answers to that are what? I heard it in church. This pastor told me it. My parents told me this. My Sunday school teacher told me this. And the list goes on and on and on. We're bound to traditions. We're bound to denominations. We're bound to our own prejudices. But when do we come to the point where we realize we strip it all away and understand that the only authority that we have to make a defense is in the pages of Scripture? What do you believe? And why do you believe it? Can you make a defense of the gospel? What would you say? The Bible tells us that we are always to be ready. That's what, think about what Paul tells Timothy about preaching the word. What does he tell him? He says, preach the word, be ready. In season, out of season, always. Because the need is always there. And you never know when you are called to give a defense of the faith. Now, this is interesting because this word defense is where we get the Greek word apologian, which you may have heard the term apologetics. This is where we get the term apologetics, the discipline of defending the faith. This is what we're called to do. This word in the Greek means to answer, reply, reason, give an account, or make a defense. And now we have clear scripture that tells us as believers that every one of us at the drop of a hat should be ready to give a defense. That seems intimidating sometimes, doesn't it? You're like, "Mm -mm, not me. No, there's no one exempt. Can you do that? I usually don't do this, so forgive me on this. I, I I was putting these things down on the paper, and I started to laugh a little bit. Because if you've been here any time at all, you know that I, I don't do points. But so often, points are kind of, a, especially growing up, all, all, I was in a Baptist upbringing, and I know that every Baptist church that I ever went to, it was, I got three good points for you, no matter where I went. I got three good points. And I've never done that. Today I do. <laughs> but they're important, and they're needed. So humor me on this one. When we start to look at apologetics, we want to break it down into three components if we can. Because we have to be able to hit all three of these components to be effective in our apologetics. And what I'm going to do on this, if it's okay, is to take the Apostle Paul and to show you how he incorporated these components in his apologetic ministry. Because if there was anyone that ever went out and gave a defense of the gospel, it was the Apostle Paul thousands of thousands of miles traveling to different territories and providences to spread the gospel of Christ. There was no greater evangelist on planet earth than the apostle Paul. So we have to be able to look to him under the leadership of the Bible and see what these components of apologetics are. The first thing that we must know, and we've just mentioned it previously, is this. You must know and use scripture. There can't be anything more at the top of the list that when you're given a defense of the gospel and the faith that you have and the hope that you have than being able to use Scripture. Again, doesn't this go back to not shutting off your minds? But as Peter will tell us on the last verse of 2 Peter, the whole end of that letter, he says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. 
Paul tells us that we're to renew our mind so we're not conformed to the world, but transformed. That we're to gird up the loins, as some translations say, of our minds, ready for battle. You cannot make a defense of the gospel and the hope that you have properly without the use of the scripture. That has to be the first thing that we know. We even look at Christ. When he was tempted in, in, in his earthly ministry in the wilderness and Satan came to him and began to tempt him, how did he respond? It is written. Christ quoting the Old Testament saying, it is written, you shall not. He makes an appeal to the scripture. We find this in Acts 17, verse 1 through 3. This is, this is Paul speaking here. And the whole book of Acts is good to see the working of this ministry. But in Acts 17, he's at Thessalonica. And in verse 1 through 3, it says this. Now, when they had traveled through Amphilios and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Paul didn't go in there and say, Hey, listen, here's what I think it is. Here's my thinking on it. Here's my reasoning on it. Here's my opinion on it. What did he do? He says, listen, boys, sit down. Here's the word of God. Here's the Old Testament. Because when he says scriptures, we have to know that that is the Old Testament. Paul didn't have a New Testament that you have in your hands. When he's reasoning with scriptures, when he's talking about scriptures, he's going to the Old Testament. We have teachers today that say, and preachers today that say, we got to unhitch the Old Testament from the Bible. There's nothing more blasphemous and ridiculous than that. Because the Old Testament points to Christ. Jesus says the Old Testament is speaking of Him. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Paul opens up the Old Testament and says, My defense to you is found in Scripture. Look, Christ had to come. He had to die. He had to be resurrected. It's the truth. How many times in your apologetic work or your defense do the words, well, I think so, or it's my opinion that, it is the Word of God that you stand on, and the Word of God is immutable, the Word of God is unchanging, the Word of God is complete truth. If you try to stand on your own, you will fall, but the rock that you stand on is the immutable Word of God. See the importance of knowing Scripture? Again, we don't shut off our minds and just coast through emotions. I don't come to church because I'll feel good for a couple hours and then I'll come back next week. No, no, no. It's to learn the truths of the Bible. And then it doesn't stop there. It is to go home and be relentless in your studies and relentless in your pursuit. Do you remember when Peter tells us in chapter 2, like newborn babies that cling for the milk, so as a Christian should be desiring the Word of God. Do you desire the Word of God? It's the foundation of your apologetics. It's the foundation of the truth. If someone says to you, why do you believe that? Show me. What would you say? Could you? We all fall on this. We all have work to do on this. But you see, that's why he tells, even in the New Testament, he's telling them there to study to show yourself approved. 
to study, to know the Word. Because when you begin to give a defense, it starts here. And what I found is that people that can't give an, a defense is because they have no Scripture to ground it in. There are, there, are, there are theories, I'll call them that, there are beliefs, and then you begin to press them on and say, well, why do you believe that? And you know what they'll never do? They'll never go to the Scripture. Why? Because there's no leg to stand on. Because they can't go to Scripture. Because what they believe is not in Scripture. Because what they believe is contrary to Scripture. How much Scripture do you know? And could you give a defense of the hope that you have using Scripture as your foundation? That's what we're called to do. It's not your opinion. It's the Word of God. That's the first thing that we are to know. However, it doesn't stop there because now each person has a little bit different story of how they saw this grace of Christ, how they were rescued, how they, the story they have to tell. Right? Not everybody's story is the same. Not everybody has the same upbringing, the same background. The story is all the same to every Christian. You were lost. You were straying, unable to save yourself. But the shepherd of your soul and the guardian of your heart found you and rescued you. That's the story of your salvation. That He came to the heart that was dark and unable to come to the light. And He spoke to the soul and said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the story. The story is the same. How one is rescued by Christ is the same, but the story leading up to that is different. The life you live before that is different. The circumstances around it is different. And this is the second part that we can use in our apologetics. We stand on the truth of the Bible. We claim the truths of the Bible based on scriptural facts and truths. We should never say anything on our own merit that cannot be backed up with the Word. Because here's the rule that I'll say and then we'll move on. If you can't back it up with Scripture, then it is an opinion. It's as simple as that. It's an opinion. We don't give a defense, we don't give a reason based on opinions. We give it on the Scripture, as Paul would do wherever he went. But then we see Paul also used his personal story to show the evidence of the salvation that was brought to him. We, we see this, one of the times we see it clearly is when P, or Paul is arrested in Acts chapter 22. He's there, and what's interesting that we have covered so much, in, especially in the study of Romans, is the mystery of the gospel. And we've talked about this, and we said, if you went into churches today and said, what is the mystery of the gospel, how many churches would know that, or how many people would know that? The mystery of the gospel is that salvation was brought to the Gentile as well, that the Gentile could be grafted in to spiritual Israel. That's the mystery of the gospel that Paul labors all through Romans and other epistles. And we talked about this hostility that was there between the Jew and the Gentile. And until we understand that hostility, we can't understand the mercy and grace that was given to us through His infusion and grafting in of us as Gentiles. And if you remember that I've said before that in the temple there in Jerusalem, 
There was an outer court where everyone could go. There was an outer court where the Gentiles could meet, and then they started sectioning it off into different sections of the, the tabernacle or the temple there. And the outer court was for everyone. And then the, to the next section, there was a little wall. Remember this wall we talked about? It was a little wall called the wall of hostility or the wall of division. And here's the importance of that wall. Now, picture this. You're a Gentile there, and you're standing on the outside, the court of the Gentiles. And you see these people going into the, the deeper parts of the temple, and you see them, what well, it looks like they're getting closer to the presence of God. But you as a Gentile have to stay on this outside wall of hostility. And if I remember this correctly, there's a part of this wall that is in a museum in Turkey as today, I think, as we speak. But on this wall, the sign was recovered. And what the sign would say to the, to the, the uh, paraphrasing would be this. If you are not a Jew and you go past this wall, you're dead. Can you imagine that? There's the temple of God, the glory of God, the presence of God, and the Jew is going in, but you as a Gentile are on the outside, and if you cross this wall, you die. That's why Ephesians 2 is so beautiful, because it says with the death of Christ, the wall of hostility was torn down. It wasn't torn down at the moment, but it was symbolically torn down, saying that what stopped the Gentile before, that wall of partition, that wall of hostility is down. Now there is no more separation. It is the grafting in and the infusion of one people. You see, the, that's amazing to the Gentile in the day what that would have meant. And as Gentiles today, we have no idea what that means. We're so nonchalant to that thought. But that wall is going to come into play because when Paul is going to get arrested, do you know why he's arrested in this section? Because they accuse him of letting a Gentile go over that wall. They said, look, he's defiled the temple. He's allowed Gentiles to cross this wall. You see the, the severity of that? If you're a Gentile today, we should thank God that he has allowed salvation to come to you. And the charge that they arrested Paul on was that he allowed a Gentile to cross that wall. And they arrest him and they drag him out of the temple and they shut the door behind him. And this multitude of people are pummeling Paul. They are beating Paul. It finally gets stopped and the guards come and the guards have to literally carry him because of the riot that's going on. Slandered, falsely accused. You know, we've been reading about it. And Paul says, can I please say something and Paul stands on the stairs that day. And in Acts 22, he gives a defense of the hope that's in him. Can you imagine that? Who have you made a defense in front of? Your co-worker, two or three of them? A family member who may not talk to you anymore? Paul standing in front of hundreds, thousands of people that have just tried to kill him. And he says, let me tell you about the hope that is within me. And he starts. And he starts to tell his personal story. He tells where he's from. And he says, I persecuted the way, which are the, that's what the people of God were called in that time, the, people, the children of the people of the way. 
He says, I persecuted the way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. He says, listen, I was persecuting Christians. I was the worst of the worst. He goes on to say in other writings that I was the chief of all sinners. There was no one worse. Look at who I was. Oh, but one day I was on the road to Damascus. And you know what? Contrary to what some people will tell you, you know what Paul would tell you? He wasn't seeking God for one second. There was not one moment in Paul's walking to Damascus that he was seeking God. You mean it must be true when the Bible says there's no one who seeks God. That's true. To say it's not is to deny the truth of the Bible. We seek God after we're saved, but not before. Can you imagine this? Paul is walking on the road to Damascus. It's about 120-ish miles. Can you imagine walking on foot 120 miles with the sole purpose to take Christians and drag them and bring them back to Jerusalem because you hate them that much? That's what Paul was doing. 120 miles plus with papers in his hand to say that he can ask people if they believe in this God. And if they do, he can bring them back. And here goes Paul on this road Not seeking God, but God was seeking him. You see, that's the story of salvation. It always has been. It always will be. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, his lost sheep. Paul sees this blinding light, the radiant glory of God. It knocks him to the ground. And in that moment, his life is transformed, isn't it? What is he going, what is he, he told to tell Paul, uh, the, the young man who's going there to, to, to witness to him and tell him the things that God is going to tell him and he's going to meet him there. What is he told to tell Paul? Tell Paul that he's my chosen instrument. He's going to suffer for me. And now Paul's on these stairs with the fury of these people right in front of him. And he says, let me tell you, the hope that's in me. Let me tell you who I was. Let me tell you what I was all about. Let me tell you how ignorant I once was. But God came and rescued me. He tells his personal story. We know he's reasoned with Scripture, but now he tells this personal story. Do you have a story to tell? But we have to be careful as well that our story can't be about us. It has to be about the mercy of God. I was lost. I was this. I was here and I was doing this and unable to save myself. And oh, what hopelessness I had. This is who I was. But there was a hero that came. There was a rescuer of my soul that came. Let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me tell you how he's changed my life. Let me tell you who I am now. Not only can I back it up with the truth of the Bible, but I can tell you from the evidence of my life of what he's done for me. You see, these are two of the components that we're to use in apologetics. The word of God, not our opinion. And to tell the story of our salvation, which is in Christ and Christ alone. Paul will also stand before Agrippa and Felix. He'll stand before these people and he will give the same account. Let me tell you the reason of the hope I have. He reasoned with him. And he shared his story. And all those things are good. You're like, okay, I can do those things. 
I got it. I, I, okay, I'll, I, can, I, can, I think I can hang in there with some scripture. I really need to learn a little bit more, but let me be able to anchor myself in my defense in scripture. And then I think, you know, listen, yes, I have a story. that I can tell that. So two for two. But do you want to ruin it all? Don't do component three. And as quickly as your mouth is opened, as quickly as their hearts will close. Look what he goes on to tell them. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Don't answer this out loud. But have you ever made a defense for the gospel? And you've ruined it because you didn't do it with gentleness and reverence. I can tell you that I have. I have a couple times in my mind that every time I come across these verses, I can think of certain times and I'd give anything to have them back because we're all human. You know what? If someone comes barking at you and hostile at you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to get defensive and you're going to shut down. We do that. And you can ruin it at the drop of a hat where the truth in your words don't even come to the ears of those people because they've tuned you out, waiting for their next rebuttal to you. You know, it's amazing if you look at the scriptures, how gentle and how patient the Apostle Paul was. All the thousands of people that he witnessed to, them trying to stone him, them beating him. What did he do? They, they literally are beating him. And he says, can I tell you all something? He didn't say, how dare you do that to me? What's wrong with you? Can I tell you about the hope that's in me? Can I tell you that, yes, you just beat me, and yes, you falsely accused me, but let me tell you about the hope that I have, that I want you to have, and if you have this hope, you won't be like that anymore. You want them to see that what you have is something worth having. How many times have we ruined it? How many times? This is why. You see, the context means everything. What have we just labored to this point? They're going to persecute you. They're going to revile you. Don't. Don't. Turn. Be peacemakers. Those are the children of God. Because that third part is everything. If you don't have the first part, then you have no leg to stand on. It's your opinion. You have to have a testimony to show that it's true and there's fruits of who you are. That's good, but you can ruin it if you don't come in gentleness and reverence. Listen to this verse in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is such an amazing verse to me. Uh, there's so much in here. I'll tell you what's in here. Being reverent and kind in our witnessing that God has to grant you repentance. You know, like in the Bible where it says that no one can come to the Son unless it's been granted by the Father. He says that repentance has to be granted by the Father. Think about these little, little small, intricate words that change the meaning of everything. And then it talks about the bondage of the will. That yes, we have free will, but it's enslaved to sin and we'll never choose Christ on our own because it tells us that we are held captive by the devil to do his will. Three verses here that are packed with such theological richness. Listen to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Verse 25, with gentleness 
correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, there's a lot in that, but let's just focus on gentleness and reverence. He says, be gentle, not quarrelsome, kind, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I know I've listened to James White. He says this quite often, and, and I'll move on after this point, but he made this statement, and it was amazing in how God works, because one of the times of my making a defense of what I believed to be true was early on. And when you're early on in discovering the truths of the Bible, you become very zealous for, to, and sometimes, and that's good, but sometimes it can cost you. And you can lose your patience very quick because you want people to see the truth so bad. And I know that it was no accident that just about a day after I had failed miserably in responding and giving a defense and kindness and gentleness, I heard him say that it does you no good to witness or to try to defend something of the word when you have your hand on the sword at all times. Just walking around with a sword. I dare someone. He says the worst thing you can do is when you're trying to witness for the word and you try to stab him to where it hurts the most and you put the sword in him and then you just walk away. And you say, hey, think on that. There will be no good that ever comes out of that. We're to not leave the sword in people. We're to respond in truth and kindness. So they will think on these things and not think how much they despise your actions. It is not our argument to win. It is not our job to persuade them. We cannot. Paul says that we try to persuade men, but that's not our ultimate doing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. You could say the perfect words at the right time. In the right, you could do it all. And if God's Spirit does not change their heart, then your words will never get it done. We put so much pressure on ourselves. If I'd have said this, if I'd have done this, if I'd have said this word a little bit differently, and I've stood here for the first many years of the ministry and done the same thing. Oh, I wish I would have done this. Oh, if I'd have said this better. Oh, if we'd have done this. I could say the perfect words. And if the Spirit of God doesn't actively change that soul, there's nothing I can do. I could say words that I go home and say, well, I don't even know what I said. That was ridiculous. There was, I don't even, that doesn't make sense to me. And God could use those words and change the heart. Just like that. It's gentleness that he's requiring. Ask yourself, can you make a defense of the gospel? Are you always ready? If you left here today and you went to the gas station and someone said, tell me what you believe and why you believe it, could you? We're called to. You see, it's a desire to study the word more, isn't it? You're never going to find a time in the Bible where he says, study it less, know it less, you've learned enough. We have to stand on the scripture. And if you're a child of God and that heart has been sanctified, then you do have a testimony. Use that to confirm the scripture. 
but do it with gentleness and reverence. He says, and keep a good conscience, verse 16, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What we've talked about before, when they accuse us, when they slander us, our behavior should be ones that when they do see those things, they see the slander is not true and that we are living as Christ has called us to live. For it is better if God should will it so that you should suffer for what is doing, for, for doing what is right rather than for what is doing and what is wrong. Now, you see here that we've already labored the point in the first section of First Peter, the first chapter, that trials are necessary. They're there to refine our faith, to put us in the crucible, and to grow our faith in Christ. We know that they're there. And he says, if God should will it so that you should suffer. Remember, we're called for this. And here is the overall point of this verse, that God ordains all things that comes to pass. And unjust suffering, even though we feel like it's unjust, it is ordained by God. And if it's ordained by God, what comes from God is always good and it's working for His decree and purpose. You see, everything that comes in your life is ordained by God. Even the suffering is God's will and we're to consider it a blessing. That's a section on apologetics. Now, briefly, let's cover verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There's so much here. Some of this, as you've already heard through our study already of 1 Peter, but also in Romans. But let's just unpack this just for a second. That he says that he died for sins once for all. What is the significance of that? Well, we look back to the Old Testament and we see that this imagery is what? That every year the animal would have to be sacrificed. They continually offered sacrifices because those sacrifices were a type. They were a shadow pointing to the true sacrifice. They were pointing to the true redemption that would come. And it labors the point that it would be year after year after year after year they would offer sacrifices which could never take away the sins of the people. If it could, then they wouldn't have to keep coming back. It was pointing to Christ. Because Christ died once for all, His substitutionary death is sufficient and there are no other sacrifices needed. And we have some scripture for here in Hebrews especially that tells us this. We, we see in Hebrews 9 verses 11 through 12, it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of the, this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal, eternal redemption. We go on down to verse 24 of chapter 9. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place with, made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, there's our types and shadows, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For it was that He would offer Himself often, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of, of the ages, he has been made manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then one of my favorite verses and sections of scripture is in Hebrews 10. It's on your sheet there, verse 10 through 14. If you've 
If we've been here for any time, you've heard this, but it's so good. We'll share it again. It says, by this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For every priest daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifices which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, listen to this, for by one offering, offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He's perfecting those who are sanctified. Speaking to the perseverance of the saints that we are imputed by the righteousness of Christ, that you're not perfect in your own merits, but He's perfecting you through the work of this once-for-all sacrifice. Now, let me just make a brief note on here because it's important to see the context of it. We know in the tabernacle and we know in the temple there was one thing missing from those places. And you know what it was? A seat. In the tabernacle, there was no seat. The high priest could never sit down in the temple when it moved into Jerusalem. If you went into the temple, the high priest there, he could find the, the showbread, he could find the incense, he could find the candlestick, he could find the Ark of the Covenant, he could find the labor, he could find the basin, he could find all those things, but he could spend all day looking and he would never find a place to sit down. Oh, there's so much significance in that. Why? Because he had to continually offer his sacrifices. His work was never done because the office of the high priest in the Old Testament and before, the, before Christ came to be was a sign and it was a shadow of the true high priest who would come in Christ. So there was never a place for them to sit down, which meant that their work was never done. But here comes Christ. And you just read it in Hebrews chapter 10, 10 through 14. But once he had offered himself for sins one time for all, he sat down. He sat down. What the high priest couldn't do in the Old Testament, he did. Because their work was never done. But when Christ, by this once for all sacrifice, when he had performed that act, he goes back to the cross when he says to tell us die. It is finished. He sat down because the work was over. He's the high priest that took a seat. And that seat, if you're wondering where it's at, it's on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning as we speak, running this universe flawlessly and perfectly because he has made the once for all sacrifice and then sat down. Those are things we can't overlook. He says this. He's, he says he died once for all, the just for the unjust. There's so much in that, that you and I are unrighteous. We're unjust. I've said this before, and when I go and speak to these, the schools, and I always ask this question, and it's, you see the look on these children's face because when they, this moment of realization, it hits them, and it's such a desperate feeling you see in their eyes, and it should be. I say, what is the standard? What is the requirement to enter heaven? And I say, perfection. And you can just see the looks on these kids' face because it doesn't take one second to know that you're not perfect. 
Matthew 5.48 says, be perfect because my Father is perfect. That He's going to come back one day and judge the world in righteousness. He's looking for righteousness and it says that righteousness will enter the kingdom of heaven and those who have no righteousness won't. But the Bible says that there's none righteous, not even one. Do you see the problem? Do you see the dilemma? I'm hopeless. If my righteousness is required, I'm hopeless. If it's my merit to get me to heaven, I'm hopeless. I'm unjust. I'm unrighteous. I have none. But did you hear those words? The just for the unjust. Who was righteous? It was Christ. We've talked about it so many times, but it has to get in our bloodstream. It wasn't just enough that he came to die. He also had to come and live. Because if he just goes to the cross, our sins are atoned for great, but where's our righteousness? You don't have any. And righteousness is required. So that's why Christ came and lived a life on earth. That's why he came and actually lived on earth and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Now go back. How many times have you been slandered and you've slandered back? How many times have you been reviled and they, you revile back? How many times have you been insulted and you insult back? That happened to Christ. And what happens if one time, one time, he acts like you and me and gives them what... They deserve. Guess what? We have no hope of heaven. If he sins one time, you have no hope of heaven. He came and lived a perfect, sinless life to meet the requirement that is needed to enter heaven. He did that for his people. The just for the unjust. You couldn't. He did. We all stand before God in our righteousness condemned. But he lived a life. Of perfection. So the full righteous requirement of the law, as Romans 8, 1 through 4 will tell us, the full requirement of the law that you and I could never complete is now given to those who believe. I always use the example of paper. I, I don't know why I do this, but it, if you've never seen it, here is the example that I, that I always use. It's it, you have to have a certificate of perfection to enter heaven. Here's how you get into heaven. It says that you, listen, he signed off on it and you have been perfect your whole life. Here's your righteousness. You got to have one of these to get into heaven, but none of us do. But Christ lives a perfect life. He fulfills all righteousness. He met the requirement and now he has that requirement. And when you and I come Place faith in Him through our justification. See, justification is where He declares you righteous. Listen to the language. You're not righteous on your own. He declares you righteous. It's like the judge who looks at you and hammers down the gavel and says, you are righteous. And you're like, no, I'm not. He says, yes, you are. Because you know that certificate that you needed? The one that you couldn't keep or do or earn? You've placed your faith in the Son. And I always give it to her. Makes her feel better. He says, listen, here's your perfect righteous requirement. You couldn't keep it. I did it for you. Here. That'll get you there. That's the only thing that's going to get you there. 
It's His righteousness. The just for the unjust. There's no hope without the perfect active obedience of Christ. And if you're a child of God, you stand here clothed today in His righteousness. As Martin Luther would say, that this righteousness is a justitia alienum. Now, you know that word. You hear the word alien in there because it's not of yourself. It's other than. The righteousness that enters you into heaven is not your own. How arrogant it is to think that you can earn it. How arrogant it is to think that you can keep it. You, you have it and you keep it not because of your worth and your righteousness, but because of His. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. And you're dressed in two things today. As you sit here today, you are either dressed in your filthy garments of unrighteousness or you're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. There are no other options. And when He looks at you that day, if you are a Christian, He will never see anything for entrance into heaven except for the perfect work of His Son. That's the act of obedience of Christ. That goes back into forgiveness. How many times have you ever asked for forgiveness and you just don't feel like you deserve forgiveness? We've all been there. I've done, no, Lord, you can't because I've done this too many times and I'm not deserving of this. You can never forgive me. Let's go back to this just for the unjust really quickly. What does he say? If you confess your sins, he is faithful. And what? He's faithful and he's just. What does that mean? That he took those sins of his people on the cross. They've been atoned for. They've been paid for. And he's just in his action. Not only is he the, he's just because he took on those sins. They just didn't get overlooked. He took the wrath of those. He's the just and the justifier. So when you come and seek forgiveness, it's not because you earned it. It's not because you deserve it. It's because he's just and he's paid for those sins. You see, even forgiveness is of him and his work. But it doesn't stop there with the just for the unjust. It goes to the cross, doesn't it? Because your unrighteousness, the unrighteousness of his people, was imputed to him. That he bore the sin of his people all the way to the cross. Every sin that you would commit, every thing that you would do in defiance and disobedience to God. He carried the sin of his people to the cross. He was just, but he took on the sin of his people. And why did he do that? Second Corinthians tells us that so clearly. It says, he made him who knew no sin, the one that's just and righteous, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about that. That you can become the righteousness of God because of the imputed work of Christ on the cross. Can you give me 10 seconds? The just for the unjust, really quickly. I love doing this. Let's just do it really quickly. This is the Father. How many sins? Each tick mark represents a sin. How many did the Father have? Zero. How many did the Son have? 
zero. This thing is us. We can't shade it black enough. Here's the just. Here's the unjust. Here's what happens on the cross. You ready? He who knew no sin became sin so that the unjust could have the righteousness of Christ applied. That's the great exchange. That's the just for the unjust. That's the only hope we have. And what does that do? He goes on to tell us, he says that brings us to God. How does that bring us to God? Because one of the things that the Bible tells us is this, before our salvation, we are enemies of God, hostile in mind. But when we're justified, this is what Romans chapter 5 tells us. Listen to this. Chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. The wrath is over. You have peace with God, and you have peace with God because of what He's done. That's why there's no condemnation now, because we are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say a little bit farther down in verse 8 through 11, but God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who's He talking to with the us? If you go back to the first chapter in Romans, He's going to tell you He's talking to the called. He's talking to the elect of the church. He is talking to these people here. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we have been saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life. His death has reconciled His people back to God. The war is over. The hostility is over. The wrath is over. All because of God and His work. And then we'll finish with this, where it says he was put to death in the flesh. We've talked about this before, but if you remember, I'll write it up here. We don't have time to labor this point today, but the mystery that Christ came is found in what we call the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the joining of two distinct natures. When Christ came, think about this, the, the Son of God has been around from all eternity. There's never been a time where He's not. The Logos. But He took on flesh and came into this world. The Spirit of the Logos wrapped Himself with flesh. And in the person of Christ, you have two, divine, you have two natures. You have the divine nature and you have the human nature in Christ. We see that. He is hungry. The, the divine doesn't get hungry. That's the flesh part of Him. And we know that He's forgiving sins while He's on earth. The flesh can't do that. That's the divine nature. It's this union of the two natures in the hypostatic union. That's important because we've said this before, but let me just say it again. If you said or were asked, did God die? Did Jesus die on the cross? We have to be careful on how we answer that because He did die, but we have to make distinctions. What nature died. It's the human nature 
that died. He was put to death in the flesh. Think about it for a second. If the divine being of God dies, do you know what happens next? The world ceases to exist. You're not here to know about that story. Everyone in Jerusalem that day would have been pulverized from the face of the world. The universe would be no more. The stars would be no more. If the being of God died on the cross that day, the Logos did not die. The divine did not die. But the flesh did. That's why he had to come in the flesh. There had to be physical blood. That's what Hebrews 2 tells us. He died in the flesh. Because... The Bible tells us that in Him we live and we move and we exist. And God didn't die because where's the Father during this time? Still living. Where's the Spirit? Still alive. He died in the flesh. It's a distinction we have to make. He was put to death in the flesh, but He was raised by the Spirit, made alive in the Spirit. And what we see here is the spirit that raised Christ is at work in the heart of his people. It is that same spirit that seals his elect, guaranteeing their inheritance into heaven. And the spirit that raised Christ will raise us one day. And since Christ has been resurrected from the dead, our hope is living. That's what 1 Peter tells us in, in, in the first chapter. It says we've been raised to a living hope because Christ has been raised by that Spirit. And this is the hope, that living hope. This is the hope that we're called always to be ready to make a defense for. There's a lot at stake here. Let your mind think about the work of Christ. Let your mind think about the defense that we're called to make. We start with Scripture. That's where it starts. We must do it with kindness. And it's perfectly right to tell your story. He's been made alive in the flesh. And that's the hope that we're called always to be at a drop of a hat, ready to give a defense for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it means to us, Lord. Lord, our heart is overwhelmed when we think of the just for the unjust. God, of how we're so hopeless without you. How you came to live and to die for your people. And without that, we are hopeless. And Lord, let us understand that deeper. Because the more that we understand that, the more amazing your gospel looks. And it, the more amazing it appears to us. And Lord, the more amazing it appears to us. And the more that it overflows our soul, the more we'll have a desire to share that word. Lord, we pray that we would have boldness for you. We would always be ready to give a defense, that we would not be intimidated, God. We would not be fearful. Our hearts would not be troubled. But God, also let us be prepared. God, let us be prepared to give a defense at the drop of a hat. 
God, let us stand on your truth and not our feelings or our emotions. Lord, let us anchor our defense in you. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, and help us, Lord, to be kind and gentle to those whom we share this with. And Lord, thank you for your active and your passive obedience. Because without it, we have no hope. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, to keep our mind on the living hope that is set before us. Because it is an imperishable inheritance that's waiting. Thank you, God. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.